There is lots of Torah learning taking place today, and we should be excited that such study occupies a central place in so many Jewish lives. Dafyomi has encouraged and inspired people who never before considered learning Talmud to try to learn all of Shas over seven and a half years. Alongside Talmud, there are Shiorim and Chomish, Tanakh, Mishnah Halacha, Midrash, Musr, and more. Yes, we spend a lot of time learning God's words. But do we sometimes forget to also learn about God? I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. I'm going to start by talking about a wedding hall and a shiva house. I was recently at a wedding, and immediately after the chuppah, as is typical for evening weddings, a large number of men gathered to daven ma'ariv. As it turned out, we stood on the right side of the chuppah. Maybe there were a hundred men davening at the time. Although I've been part of ad hoc wedding minyanim like this for years, this time I started paying attention to something that I had never really given serious thought to before. I looked up in the middle of the tefillah to the left side of the chuppah, across from where we were davening, and saw our counterparts, maybe 50 or more women, standing around and talking. Please don't misunderstand me. I am not criticizing the women. I'm not criticizing the men. I'm not criticizing anyone. I'm pointing out the well-known reality, and I'm guessing that many, if not most of you, can confirm this too, that at most Orthodox weddings or other events where ad hoc minyanim take place, the men daven and the women do not. I went to a wedding about a week later, and the same thing occurred. Half of the participants daven marv after the chuppah, and the other half, the female half, didn't. I'm fully aware, of course, that women are exempt from praying in a quorum, a minion. I know that many women choose with halachic license not to daven three tefillot a day. I'm not suggesting that these laws change. But I think that as an orthodox society, men and women together, we need to ask why so often it doesn't even occur to women to daven in certain circumstances. In the case of a wedding, there's no reason that women have more to do or greater responsibilities than men. So why so often do few of them daven? Why is it likely that it did not even occur to many of them to join us in prayer? Yes, they're exempt, but in a situation where davening is going on and there's no reason not to do it, wouldn't it be good if they did it? As a Jew who tries to follow the Torah, I think that more Jews davening would be a good thing. What does it say about our system of education that when there's an opportunity to communicate with God and the opportunity presents itself to everyone there, the women leave it for the men to do? I really don't want to offend anyone, and I repeat, I'm not criticizing anyone, and I'm most certainly not speaking about all women. There are definitely exceptions to this. I just question whether the messages we're imparting about connecting to God are really getting through. Maybe the real question is whether, in our shiurim and classes, we're talking that much about God at all. Which leads me to my second thought about a shiva house I visited last week. Dodi Fishman Tobin passed away last week, and many, many stories are being told about her and the faith she exhibited during her too short life. I was sitting along with a group of people with her husband, Mark. And while he told many stories while I was there, the common theme that I kept hearing was Dodi's dedication to teaching her students about Hashem. We learn Torah, we learn Halacha, we learn Gemara, we learn Mishnah. How often do we actually talk about God in a serious way? Dodi was someone who obviously did talk about God and to God. I did not know her personally, but her example of faith is inspiring in many ways. First of all, someone directly facing her own mortality was demonstrating such strong emunah and bitachon, faith and trust. Moreover, that she didn't tire of talking about God. That shiva is a shiva that I will carry with me. How much more so will the many who are personally guided by her example? This leads me to my assertion that we need to bring God into our lives in more concrete ways. I think that many people feel this way, and one of the responses to this is the growth of what is termed neo-Hasidut. And to find out more about this movement, I was honored to speak to Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Zukier of the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. I think that this topic is especially acute as we approach Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and we try to experience that personal connection to Hashem. Two weeks ago, I started addressing this topic when I spoke to Rabbi Mark Wilds about Kiruv and recovering passionate Judaism. Last week, we continued by speaking about intellectual challenges to faith. 
Today, we'll discuss what's going on in many communities with the rise of neo-Hasidut. And next week, we're going to deal with Jewish meditation and making God a reality in our lives. I hope that these episodes will give you food for thought about how God can be experienced in perhaps different ways, and maybe even open new avenues for religious expression as we approach the Amim Noraim. Shlomo Zukier is a scholar of rabbinic literature and thought, and is a research associate at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. He received MAs in Bible and Talmud from Yeshiva University, and a PhD in Religious Studies from Yale University in 2020. He subsequently held the Flegg Postdoctoral Fellowship at McGill University and was a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy of Religion at Notre Dame prior to beginning his research at the Institute for Advanced Study. Shlomo previously spent over a decade studying in traditional yeshiva settings and pursued rabbinic ordination and post-ordination studies in the Kolel Elyon at Yeshiva University Reitz. He has taught academic courses in Jewish thought, rabbinic literature, Hebrew Bible, and normative ethics at Yale, Yeshiva, Toro, and McGill Universities at the undergraduate and graduate levels. Shlomo has edited two volumes on contemporary Jewish thought, founded the Lairhouse, served as a campus rabbi at Yale, and taught Talmud and Jewish thought at the Drisha Institute and at various synagogues, university campuses, and educational organizations. He is a recipient of the AJS Dissertation Completion Fellowship, Tikva Fellowship, Wexner Graduate Fellowship, MFJC's Advanced Torah Fellowship, and the David Hartman Center Fellowship. Shlomo lives in New Jersey with his wife, Hannah, and three daughters. Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Zukier, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Before we begin anything else, and we are going to be speaking about some serious issues about striving for a deeper connection with God and about the need for greater spirituality in some of our Orthodox communities, I first want to mention something which is probably not that related to that, but is it true that you actually occupy Albert Einstein's old office at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton? Uh, it is true. A bit of a uh, of a fluke, uh, and apparently uh, the math people who usually have the room are upset, but I am in his office, and it's, uh, it's a great inspiration for me. Wow. Okay. Well, famously, he believed in God, though perhaps not in spirituality the way you and I are going to define it today, although I guess we'll find out about that. So it's kind of uh, an interesting coincidence, which he probably didn't believe in. Anyway, I want to begin, Shlomo, with a definition. You edited a wonderful book that was recently published by the Orthodox Forum series. It's entitled Contemporary Uses and Forms of Hasidut. The introduction that you wrote carries the title, Defining Neo-Hasidut Then and Now. And I want to begin there. What is Neo-Hasidut? And perhaps you can tell me how it's different from what people normally classify as Hasidut, as in the Hasidic movement that began a couple hundred years ago. Sure. Yeah. So as you said, that chapter actually spends a fair amount of time defining the terms because it's a little, the terminology can be a little tricky. Um, But as you said, uh, Hasidus or Hasidut started a couple hundred years ago in Eastern Europe. At the time, it was really a revivalist movement. It was a way of renewing Judaism in various ways to try to reach certain populations that maybe weren't being uh, reached by by what Judaism had been. Uh, and over the last couple of centuries, it's in some ways, it's sort of uh, solidified itself. And instead of being a new movement, it's now sort of broken up into all these different Hasidic courts that are actually highly traditional, and in some sense, the opposite uh, of, of the original Hasidic movement. And those who call themselves neo-Hasidim, and there's different versions, different iterations of it, but they try to reclaim that original energy, that original uh, sense of renewal that that uh, the early generations of Hasidus had. And they're not trying to reach Hasidic communities primarily, but rather other Jewish communities to try to bring something new, something spiritual to the table. They may very well be using classic Hasidic texts uh, in one form or other, um, but they're not they're not uh, targeting those communities. Now, now there are two different types, at least, of neo-Hasidus, um, one being the sort of classical early 20th century neo-Hasidus, which was generally people who weren't halakhically observant. Uh, and that's not what this book is primarily about. We have one chapter that talks a little bit about, about uh, that version of neo-Hasidus, but the book is mostly about uh, a more contemporary neo-Hasidus, both in Israel and more recently in America, in the Orthodox community. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about that type of neo-Hasidut, the type that you are dealing with in this book. Can you talk a little bit about how it is different from Hasidut itself? You mentioned that Hasidut nowadays is a traditionalist movement, even though it began as a revivalist movement. What are some of the differences between Hasidus as it exists nowadays in enclaves in Brooklyn and Israel and elsewhere? and what Neo-Hasidut is and is trying to achieve? I'd say probably the biggest difference is what makes you 
a, a chassid or a neo chassid? What draws you to it? So nowadays, if you're if you're a chassid, chances are you're a chassid because you were born into a Hasidic family. Of course, people do uh, you know enter chassidus and people switch between the groups, but most of the time you're there because that you were born into it. Whereas neo chassidus generally is people who are seekers, people who are, who are look, looking for something, searching for some deeper connection, and that draws them uh, to become uh, neo-Hasidim. So I think that's probably the biggest difference, and, and it's reflective of, of the difference between a, a sort of a renewal movement and a traditionalist movement, as you said. Well, in that case, what makes it Hasidic at all? Meaning, as a revivalist movement, it's attempting to do something new, but it's called neo-Hasidus, which implies that there is some sort of continuum between what once was and what this is now. Why the Hasidus? What element of it is Hasidus? Mm-hmm. So I'd say there's a few different elements. Maybe most of all, it's trying to capture that energy or that approach of early Hasidus. Uh, and, and so the, the goal is sort of parallel to the original Hasidus. And uh, very often, people who are neo-Hasidim will use uh, either similar approaches, more, more nigunim, more singing, uh, more use of Kabbalistic sources, and often also using Hasidic sources, Hasidic books, Hasidic nigunim, let's say visiting Hasidic communities for someone who doesn't live in those communities but feels a draw to them. Uh, so there, there are different ways in which there's crossover uh, between neo-Hasidus and Hasidus, and, but really it's trying, to, it's trying to do today what Hasidus did uh, back uh, in the 18th century. Then would you say, and this is a leading question and a loaded question, in saying that what Hasidus tried to do, or perhaps isn't doing now, would you say that the current Hasidic world is perhaps missing something, that it doesn't have everything that seekers need? In other words, are seekers in neo-Hasidus looking for what Hasidus offers, and this is simply a gateway into it? Or is it going in a different direction, saying we're going to achieve what Hasidus is supposed to achieve, maybe 200 years ago intended to achieve, but actually isn't achieving now? Um, yeah, so that, that's a great question. It's also a bit of a loaded question, and, and I'm not the right person to ask uh, because I, you know, uh, despite uh, visiting Hasidic communities here and there and uh, in, enjoying the time I spent there, I'm, I'm uh, not really a part of that world. So I can't really speak to whether it's accomplishing its stated goals or even what, what it sees its own goals as being. But I think it, it's pretty clear that however you slice it, the, just the way the Hasidic communities work today is, is different than a startup movement, right? It's now a, it's now a blue chip rather than a startup, so to mm-hmm. speak, and uh, and people are looking for that for that sense of renewal. And I, I'm sure there are you know communities within the classical Hasidic communities that that have that sort of uh, startup energy too. And, and uh, some of it has to do with who the who the uh, leaders are, whether that's the Rebbe or whether that's some sort of other teacher. There's really a lot of flexibility to to take things in their own direction. So I can't really speak to that too much. But uh, I think I think it's it's also somewhat it's somewhat uh, beside the point in the sense that let's say someone grows up in uh, five towns or grows up in uh, you know Tinek or in Israel they grow up in a Datilumi community so they they it's it's sort of difficult to have access to contemporary Hasidic communities even if one did want to be there it's it you know it's not the community you grew up in so you you can try to join that community that that's a whole process or you can sort of stay within your Datilumi or modern Orthodox community and try to incorporate some aspects of Hasidus that you, you find uh, are in, enriching or uh, you know, spiritually uh, uh, of interest. Okay, well, Shlomo, that leads directly to sort of the flip side of the questions I've been asking, which is, as opposed to talking about what neo-Hasidus is, I want to talk about what the modern Orthodox or Datilumi communities are lacking, such that neo-Hasidut has become, and I apologize for switching back and forth between Hasidus and Hasidut. I should be consistent, but I'm not. What is lacking in these modern Orthodox Datilumi communities? What problem is there that neo-Hasidut is attempting to solve? Yeah, so it's a uh, it's a great question, and, and a couple of the of the uh, essays in, in the volume really speak to those issues, uh, and, and some really do field work and, and and talk to different students, let's say at Yeshiva University or elsewhere, and, and get a sense of what's drawing them to neo Hasidus because it's really been it's really been a startup uh, sort of movement or a bottom up movement, certainly within the YU world over the last uh, 15, 20 years. This wasn't pushed from the top. This was really students who, uh, based on what they were exposed to in their year in Israel or whatnot, ha- felt that draw and, and tried to increase that. So wh- why are students drawn to this? And uh, it, it seems like many, many people have the experience that 
sort of classical yeshiva learning where you, you know, you sit in front of a Gemara, you learn a lot of Gemara, you don't think too much about its personal meaning to you or its application to your life, but you're sort of focusing on the learning itself. Although that seemed to have worked for many decades and, and for today still does work for many people, uh, for some people really felt like they were just detached from their learning. It wasn't meaningful to them. They were, uh, they felt a sense of separation from God and spirituality, and they wanted something to try to fill that void, really an alternative theology and an alternative mode of spiritual life um, to feel, you know, to feel like maybe they did in their Shanaba Aretz. Um, and, uh, and so I think that for, for many students, that's what uh, they point to when uh, talking about why they adopt neo-Hasidus to one degree or other. So does that mean that neo-Hasidus is a move away from what we might call rationalism, for lack of a better term? I don't even know exactly what rationalism is. That term itself is a loaded term. But maybe the classic Rambam, Litvish, brisker style of learning that YU has represented as an example, the fact that we are moving into this direction with greater spirituality and this feeling that somehow that initial learning that they have in in YU, let's say, or in yeshiva, doesn't enrich them on its own the same way that the spiritual seeking can and the same way that these various activities of the Hasidut can. Does that mean we're moving in a different direction? Are they trying to integrate it or are they trying to move away from what they already have? So I think there's different models of that. And again, a couple of the essays in the book uh, talk, speak to that issue. But for some people, you know, they, they were very into the learning and uh, and this is sort of on the side, like a supplement. You know, the learning, learning Gemara B'Ian is great. And they also feel like they're Kesher with uh, Kaddish Baruch, who has helped through neo And for some people, it's more of an alternative, like the learning wasn't working out. And that's why they turn to this uh, as an alternative. So I think really different, different approaches for different people. Um, but th- there's sort of a few different questions here, right? One is like, uh, are, are you still doing the learning? Are you still learning in the same way? Or does it affect your learning? Another question is theology. Meaning, you if you really uh, lean in to uh, a theology that, as some some students have described, where you know you're looking for uh, a parking spot, and you know if you find you know you dive into Hashem for a parking spot, if you find the parking spot, you think like that's you know on, on a minute level, you see hashgacha and everything you do. That's not going to be identical to uh, let's say sort of at least the standard understanding of the Rambam, where uh, you know not every single detail of, that, that happens to the average person. Is a function of, of you know of uh, hashgacha practice, but that that's a theology question. I don't know how much how much people are contrasting one theology with the other, as opposed to just leaning into uh, certain neo-Hasidic uh, approaches that that feel right to them. I wonder sometimes if the uh, move to neo-Hasidut, and I say this as somebody who really respects it and believes that we need to have a greater infusion of spirituality into much of what we do. I think that's a wonderful thing. So this is not a criticism. It's a fear. It's a concern that I sometimes have that when people start moving in that direction, moving towards, for lack of a better term, greater spirituality, as wonderful as that is inherently, it also can lead sometimes to what I fear is a type of religious shallowness where everything becomes religiously meaningful, which means that nothing's religiously meaningful. Obviously, there are situations where if somebody is able to feel the imminence of God in everything that he or she does, that's a wonderful thing. There's an essay in your book written by David Landes, where he talks about different experiences that people have. One story he talks about is a student who had a horrible Purim where everything went wrong, but in retrospect, he says that was his greatest Purim ever because he felt God's presence in everything. If a person could really live like that, that is a wonderful experience to have, and I'm wholeheartedly in favor of it. At the same time, it leads to an idea that people can become shallow, people can start fooling themselves, things that are... I don't want to start saying meaningless, but they start reading into things, running their lives accordingly. I'm sure, Shlomo, you've heard stories of people who take certain things that happen as a sign from God to do the following. And there's a very big difference between someone saying, I feel God's presence in my life at all times versus I feel God's presence. And therefore, he's telling me to do the following thing and effectively assigning to himself the role of prophet or at least a person who has some sort of a special insight because God told me to do this. Does that ever happen in your experience from what you've seen that this neo-chassidut or spirituality, call it what you will, leads to the shallowness that can turn into a theological danger? Yeah, that's an important question. And I think one of the essays in the book, uh, Rabbi Yitzhi Blau, really expresses some worries he has about, about uh, religious shallowness. I think it's hard to really evaluate that, meaning it's hard for an outsider to evaluate whether someone's experience is shallow or deep. 
Um, I, I, you know, if you ask me, it's, it's up to people themselves to make that determination. It, it's a little difficult to judge from the outside. But the, the other question you raised about uh, not necessarily shallowness, but, but really dangers and risks um, and, you know, an extremism. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't think I've seen that too much. Again, I have, I have whatever experience I've had personally and, and from working on this, uh, this volume. Um, but, uh, you know, I think maybe, maybe because um, one of the tenets of neo Hasidus within, certainly within the YU community is to take, uh, to take uh, the idea of the Tzaddik or the Rebbe very seriously. Um, so people generally don't have grandiose ideas themselves uh, and, and that danger that you're worried about. Um, you know, and if they would have, you know, if they would say, well, you know, I should just, you know, drop out of college and stop, you know, just uh, do his this 10 hours a day. Presumably they talk to, to their Rebbe and the Rebbe would, uh, you know, uh, give them advice that that might not be the best, you know, that might not be the best idea long term. One, one thing I have heard is that there's often a challenge uh, for people who are very deeply engaged. They feel like they're spiritually uh, in the right place with neo Hasidus, let's say, while they're in their low 20s, while they're, let's say, you know, in college and uh, with a peer group. And then a few years down the line, real life catches up and it's, it's more difficult to feel on that spiritual high. So I think that's, that's one challenge that I've seen is if you're always operating with so much, uh, you know, you feel, you feel Hashem's imminence all the time, what happens when you have a withdrawal from that, so to speak? That can be a challenge. Um, but again, no one's, you know, we, uh, I don't think anyone's done any sort of uh, real study to know to what extent this exists. You know, this is all anecdotal. Okay, Shlomo, but I'm going to push back a little bit, not because I disagree with what you're saying, but perhaps we're defining dangers in slightly different ways. There is the danger of the person dropping out of college and doing his boat at this 10 hours a day, as you say. That might be a rare a rarely actualized danger. But I'm talking about more a danger from a religious perspective that a halachic scholar might say that's not the way a person should be having his Judaism. Now, again, I'm the last person to start telling people your Judaism is wrong. That's really not the way I go. But from a perspective of looking at it as Orthodox Jews who say we believe the halacha is binding, sometimes it seems to me that neo-Hasidut as a small part of Hasidus in general, might at times actually move away from normative Judaism because of the need for the spiritual high. Let's give a simple example, talking about Meiron and Lagba Omer. Now, I realize that's not really a neo-Hasidus thing, but it is a Hasidus thing. And we know that the possibility of, let's go back to the easy stuff, Chil Shabbos, the concern of Chil Shabbos is often thrown to the wind because we really want to make sure that we have our bonfire on the correct day of Lagba Omer. That has been something which has happened in the past. Far, far more serious is what happened just over a year ago when people died on Lagba Omer. And the importance of having so many people at Meron on Lagba Omer was trumping simple safety, which of course is a halachic category we all know. Those are anti-halachic ideas, in my opinion. And because they're anti-halachic ideas, in my opinion, I feel that sometimes religious dangers, obviously there are turned into practical danger, but even religious dangers of antinomianism going away from what normative Judaism has been for a long time is somewhat present. Do you agree? Well, firstly, you said uh, that, that you think uh, Meron is, uh, is, is a Hasidic thing, not a neo-Hasidic thing. I think it, it certainly is also a neo-Hasidic thing. Many people there, both Israeli and American, many of the attendees are not people who grew up in Hasidic communities, but people who see themselves as, as neo-Hasidic. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, tragically, uh, among those who, who died was uh, Donnie Morris, who was a student in, in Shalvim from a modern Orthodox community, you know, who had some some sort of draw to uh, to that that event. And, right, and I just mean the many... people who are running it, who are making the decisions sure. are not neo Sure. But you know, I, did, I do think it's, it's worth noting that, that you, going back to some of your questions before, that they're really uh, this is another case of crossover. You know, Meron or Uman is a place where you not only have classical Hasidim, but, but uh, also some uh, neo-Hasidim making those pilgrimages. In terms of, in terms of the dangers there, I mean, yeah, of, of, you know, I'm not going to argue with you. I think uh, people who are Bechal Shabbos or endanger human lives for a spiritual experience, uh, you know, if it's a significant danger, that's certainly something people should not be doing. Uh, that's, my, that's my opinion. Uh, but my sense is there's, well, some of that may be, yeah, I, I think some of that may just be you know, some communities have greater concern or greater attention to uh, to issues of safety than others. That doesn't seem to me like uh, in the neo-Hasidic uh, community, there's uh, less concern for 
Pikuach Nefesh or Chilul Shabbos or anything of that sort. But uh, yeah, of course, of, of course, uh, you know, I think the, let's say, some of the COVID dangers in Uman or the the uh, overcrowding dangers in Meiron personally are, are things I think uh, people should take very seriously. And, and uh, if one's looking for religious experience, they should do their best to have it not compromise uh, other religious values. Okay, I accept that. Shlomo, I'd like to ask you about the historical continuity, or even perhaps if there's causality, between some of the early advocates of what we now call neo-Hasidut and its modern manifestations. I'm talking about people like Shlomo Karlbach or Zalman Shachter Shalomi, the founder of Renewal. They began in the 1950s. They were part of the Chabad movement. They were representatives of Chabad going to college campuses. Eventually, they each broke off and did their own thing. Is the modern form of neo-Hasidut an outgrowth of what they were doing, or is it something that's really a more modern phenomenon, something which began with people like Rav Moshe Weinberger and people of that school, where there really is no connection between what was happening in the 1960s? Because I think it's fair to say that one of the most common manifestations nowadays of neo-Hasidut is the Karlbach-style minion on Friday night in many communities, which, perhaps ironically, didn't really exist, I don't think, when he was still alive. I think it's actually really interesting that leaving aside um, you know, certain style of minyanim, which is, is hard to trace exactly, you know, where it goes back to or, or all the directions. But the, what we see is basically anyone talking about being inspired to neo-Hasidus within, let's say, the broader YU world generally is not getting that from, uh, you can call it the liberal neo-Hasidus or the liberal uh, renewal movement of the, of the 60s, um, you know, Lomo Kralbach, Art Green, that uh, Shalomi, that th- those don't seem to be the drivers of current neo-Hasidus in the Orthodox community in, in the let's say the YU community. Rather, it seems like people are you know uh, pick up things when they're in Israel in different aspects of, of the of the community. They're mo- very often in parts of the Haredi community in Israel, although increasingly also the Dati Lumi community has a fair amount of Hasidus and neo-Hasidus itself. Uh, and they sort of bring that back. Now, obviously, these things all mix and, you know, Minyanim that sing more probably, you know, that's existed for a while and that's not limited to neo-Hasidus. But I think one thing that's really interesting and that I learned uh, over the course of producing this book and the conference that preceded it was that actually uh, there's not such a connection between the uh, non-Orthodox or marginally uh, Orthodox uh, neo-Hasidus of the mid to late 20th century and the last 20 years, uh, neo-Hasidus in the, in the YU world. Um, we do have a chapter that talks about, talks about some of these early iterations of uh, antinomian uh, neo-Hasidism, and that goes through it and sort of surveys it, and it's helpful, helpful for reference purposes, um, but, uh, uh, but it doesn't really seem to integrate so much. And just one, one note I'll add, since you mentioned uh, Shlomo Karlbach, so that he does come up in that chapter, and, and there is a note uh, referring to, uh, you know, saying that it's necessary to discuss him given the relevance to the topic at hand, but also noting some of the very uh, problematic reports and uh, accusations uh, made against him. That shouldn't be uh, left out of the discussion. Right. You mentioned right now antinomianism, which means going against halakha and the normative duties that we know. But in, uh, I'm not going to call it a companion volume, but in an earlier book in the Orthodox Forum series entitled Jewish Spirituality and Divine Law, which in some ways is somewhat parallel to your volume, it deals with some of the same issues in its own way, there's an article by Rav Aaron Lichtenstein Zatzal, and there he quotes somebody that he overheard at a wedding, and this is not antinomianism, it's rather problematic theology, and he quotes somebody saying confidently to another, actually, you don't have to envy God because you are he. Only the part of us that does evil is not God. As for the rest, you are he. That's the quote that Rav Aaron Lichtenstein quotes. Once again, people can believe whatever they believe, but in classic Judaism, saying you are God is not really normative theology. So are there fears of spiritual minyanim, spiritual thinking of this sort, perhaps leading to what Rav Aaron Lichtenstein is describing here, where people start thinking all sorts of ideas which are not in their classic form Torah Judaism? Sure. So I'll just start by saying that uh, I actually I quote the essay by uh, Rav Lichtenstein, who, who is my Rebbe. Uh, I quote that in, in the introduction and, and build on, on his definition of spirituality. Uh, and uh, definitely this volume 
is in some sense continuing the conversation started by that volume, although that volume really wasn't thinking about neo-Hasidus in the American context because it hadn't really hit the shores of America yet. Uh, and so this is a bit of an update uh, because uh, there have been many changes on the American scene. In terms of that concern, I mean, uh, you know, you don't need a, you don't need Hasidus to have people coming up with problematic theologies. You go back to the Gaonim, they're railing against different uh, proto-Kabbalistic texts that, uh, that problematically uh, humanize God or deify man or, or something in between. Uh, so there's a long tradition of, of Kabbalistic ideas that, uh, that run into theological problems from rationalists. Um, I think the example that uh, you quoted Rev Lichtenstein as pointing to it's a particularly extreme one to say that people are God. That that would be a big polytheism problem if you certainly if you take it literally. Um, but I think to the extent one engages in studying uh, Hasidic theology or you know sort of internalizing those theological ideas, you're you're going to end up in a similar place to where Hasidic theology is, and all the debates that have existed over time about about uh, you know over the last couple hundred years over these things would, would be relevant. Again, it seems like, you know, for better or for worse, and whatever someone thinks individually, and leaving aside the extreme cases, it seems like Hasidus is accepted within Judaism in terms of the theology, right? Even if you're a big rationalist, you're not going to say, well, you know, if you believe that, uh, you know, you have a, you, your soul is a ma'al, that's a form of, you know, uh, it's the form of Avodah Zara and polytheism and therefore we have to reject all Hasidim and I don't think anyone really uh, thinks like that or functions like that so um, I, I'd say once once that's the case I don't think neo-Hasidus is going uh, any further than uh, than Hasidic theology overall and obviously there's a lot of different versions of it you know and we're generalizing here but yeah I mean I think people who who have a very spiritual view and want to feel integrated and don't do their uh, homework and don't have a Rebbe and don't, uh, you know, learn from Sfarim that would, uh, that would clarify things, you could end up with people having all sorts of uh, uh, extreme uh, and uh, perfidious theologies, uh, for sure. Okay. Well, you mentioned having a Rebbe, and once again, my disclaimer, I think having a Rebbe is crucial. I'm not trying to argue against that. However, I would also say that one of the pitfalls of leadership is when it turns into a type of damaging charismatic leadership. Now, I don't mean charismatic leadership is inherently a problem, but it very often can become very problematic. I'm not speaking about anyone in particular in a Hasidic movement right now. I'm not speaking about anybody in particular in any neo-Hasidic movement. But the move towards this idea of Hasidut or neo-Hasidut, does that ever lead to that problem of that charismatic authority crossing boundaries? Because in the past, that has been a problem in various groups where people can think of their own examples, where charismatic authority can be abusive. I don't even mean sexually abusive necessarily, even emotionally abusive, because they have that power over people. Is that something which, again, looking at the possible pitfalls of what's happening now with spirituality and neo-Hasidut, is that a possible pitfall, do you think? I haven't seen it, you know, in terms of, in terms of the uh, research done for this book, I, I haven't seen it exist in any, uh, you know, any greater degree in neo-Hasidic communities as opposed to any other community. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it's certainly it's a, it's a danger in, in, in theory, but, uh, um, you know, I, I, yeah, at least in everything I've seen, it hasn't, uh, it hasn't stood out as a particular, as a particular challenge. I'd say any, uh, one thing I'd, I'd say though, you know, the more someone says, well, I have my own approach that's different than everyone else and I have the truth and you can only get it with me, uh, that, that, that's the sort of approach that can tend towards, um, tend towards, uh, uh, abuse, just like there's. You know, there's a there's a rationalist version of that. We're the only real rationalists. Everyone else really secretly, you know, is Ovdeavoda Zara and you need to only follow me. And you can there are groups like that. And and of course there's also groups that are uh, more you know spiritual in, in nature that uh, function like that. You know, no one else understands how Hashem works, and I'll explain to you the real way that so I, I think the danger exists whatever your theology and uh, um, I guess maybe the fact that, that something is new means means there's a you know it's there's more more room for people going in their own direction, but again, I haven't seen 
anything to indicate that this is a particular issue in, in one community or another. Okay. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I want to move on to a different type of topic. I want to talk to you about meditation. Now, Arya Kaplan back in the 70s and 80s wrote extensively about Jewish meditation. One of the problems, which he himself notes in his book, Jewish Meditation, is that many groups would sometimes not really be doing Jewish meditation, which means, as he defines it, meditation that's drawn entirely from within Jewish sources. Instead, it was a type of syncretism where they would take Buddhist or Hindu ideas and Judaify them somehow, but really fundamentally it wasn't Jewish meditation. But he was trying to teach a real form of Jewish meditation. Was that just a blip on the screen or is that something which is now taking place? This Jewish meditation, the ideas that Arya Kaplan and others like him were promoting back 20, 30, 40 years ago. Is that part of neo Hasidut and this move towards spirituality? Or is that not really a major part of it? And the singing, which I agree can be a a meditative exercise as well, but it's not exactly what I mean by meditation here, is the Karl Bachminian, the spiritual davening, the Fabrengian, more the nature of what is ta- the way it's becoming manifest, and meditation has really gone to the side? Um, that's a good question. I'd say certainly in some liberal, uh, you know, in some liberal Jewish communities, there's, uh, there's a lot of uh, meditation, as far as I can tell, and that, you know, that definitely traces back to the 60s. I don't see as much of that, let's say, within the YU world. You know, there's always going to be outliers, but I don't, I don't see too much of that. And maybe that connects to what, what I was saying before, that the main influence on contemporary uh, American neo-Hasidus in the Orthodox community comes from Israel and uh, less from what was happening in America in the 60s and 70s. Although it would be interesting to see, you know, and I, I didn't look into this at all, in, let's say, parts of Israel, people who are drawn to Hasidus, especially after being drawn to the Eastern religion. And there are people like that. And, and in, in the book, we have uh, Rav Yaakov Nagen, who's done a lot of thinking about Eastern religion and Hasidus. Uh, so I wonder if, if there's people with that sort of background more who might uh, incorporate uh, some sort of meditation, Jewish or otherwise, if, if one uh, holds of that distinction. I want to ask you about neo-Hasidut and dogma. And it's sort of a strange question because you might say, what do they have to do with each other? But I think a lot of people, at least those people whom I've spoken to, find certain dogmatic assertions of Judaism to be difficult. Certain dogmatic assertions bother them because they say, I have a hard time believing that, whether it's any of the Rambam's Yud Gilni Karim or other ideas which perhaps are not as foundational or central. Still, dogma is something which a lot of people get maybe tripped up by. And they say, I like the spirituality. I like being connected to God. But very specific assertions might be something I can't accept. When people are dealing and and using, I should say, neo-Hasidic ideas or neo-Hasidic practices, perhaps, is this a way of sometimes addressing dogma? Is there such a thing as addressing dogma? Or perhaps is it a way for those people to avoid the problem? Because if I feel spiritual, I don't really care about that. The question sort of goes away on its own. I guess the real question I'm asking is, does neo-Hasidut address questions of dogma for those people who are bothered by certain Jewish doctrine? Or does it not really deal with those ideas at all? Yeah, great question. And uh, again, before answering, I'll say that, you know, it's really impossible to generalize and there's different, different people who take different approaches on things. But I, I think you are, uh, you are onto something in the sense that neo-Hasidus is generally less focused on what you call dogma or what one might call propositional belief, right? You know, these are the things you need to believe if you want to be a believing Jew. These are the these are, you know, not that they don't accept the Ikari Amuna, but that's just not the focus as much. And the focus is much more on experiential Amuna or, or uh, Amuna Pshuta, experiencing God, feeling God, rather than saying, well, I believe in God because I believe, you know, these uh, propositions and that yields faith in God. And I, I think you, you were framing it as, you know, someone might be struggling with, uh, with uh, dogma or propositional belief and turn to experience that. That's one mode. I think the other mode is for someone to say, look, you know, I can, I can believe all these things and I do, but that just doesn't feel like spirituality to me. It doesn't feel like I'm experiencing God. It just feels like I'm believing some checklist and that it's not, not that it's a problem, but that it's, it's just insufficient and that uh, feeling Hashem and, and experiencing God and having that emuna pshuta of, of trust, uh, emuna in the sense of trust more than believing in propositions might be more effective and more more uh, meaningful to people. In the book, there's two different essays that maybe go on, uh, you know, go in both of those directions. So one, Miriam Feldman Kay has an essay about Rav Shagar and Rav Shagar, both in, in, in what's analyzed there and elsewhere, uh, discusses the idea of sort of getting around challenges to faith with, you know, his, his version of neo-Hasidus, um, if you can call it that. 
On the other side, Rabbi uh, Ruvain Bashnak has an essay where he really talks about how Judaism has to be more than just belief and going through the motions of the rituals, but to really feel Hashem and have a stronger sense of connection in that way. So I think between uh, Rav Shagar, uh, as treated by uh, Dr. Feldman Kay, and uh, Rabbi Bashnak's approaches, you really have both of those, where, where dogma and propositional belief is too much of a challenge and one almost resorts to uh, experiential emuna or emuna pshuta, or the other hand, that propositional belief is insufficient, and that's why one strives towards this idea of experiencing God. And it could be, Shlomo, that what you said now leads back to what we discussed about half an hour ago about how connected this is, this movement in neo-Hasidut, to Orthodox Judaism per se or other denominations. So when you talk about maybe downplaying dogma, which for a long time, for 150 years, has been the defining difference between Orthodox Judaism and other streams of Judaism, according to many, that is the thing that makes us different. It's perhaps why dogma is highlighted now more than it was in the past because of the need to separate ourselves from other denominations. But there's also the concept, of course, of a difference in halachic practice, whether we say that other denominations of Judaism are following halacha as a norm or they're doing it as a, a, a minhag, as a custom. There is difference in practice too. All of this leads me to the question, do you think that the movement towards greater spirituality, the downplaying of dogma, perhaps even the downplaying of pure ritual for the sake of ritual without that spiritual content, do you think that this is leading in some ways to what might be called a post-denominational future, or is it rather a strengthening of orthodoxy and a creation of a greater distinction between orthodoxy and other streams, or something in the middle? Yeah, it's a a great question, and these things are, are, it's always always, uh, difficult to predict, especially the future. Um, But uh, Well, as a neo-Hasidic person, we should be be prophets at this point, so perhaps we can. Sure. Yeah, I'm certainly not for profit myself. Um, but join the club. <laughs> I, I think, I, I think at least from from what we've seen until now, um, and let's say in America, there isn't much crossover interest uh, between denominations on this front. Meaning, sure, you may have someone who's you know they'll maybe they'll read some uh, some Heschel cause they find it meaningful or you'll have some people, you know, some, maybe some singers, New York city singers will come from Israel and sing for groups of Orthodox and some non-Orthodox people that'll happen once in a while, but overwhelmingly, uh, we're, you know, when we're talking about New Hasidic groups, uh, we're talking about people who are clearly in the Orthodox community who that's their peer group. That's their religious group. Those are the shuls they're associating with. They're not sort of, uh, integrating with, other denominations and uh as i was saying before there's really there's not really much of a historical connection between the antinomian neo-hasidus of the 20th century and this orthodox neo-hasidus of the 21st century and the you know what remains of the uh, antinomian neo-hasidus doesn't really have much to do with orthodox neo-hasidus at least as far as as uh you know as i can tell um, which is which is interesting, right? Because you're saying dogma is less important. Why don't people, you know, people should overcome that? Uh, and you know, I I know of some people who are trying to build uh, a sort of a spirituality continuum across across all these groups. I just don't think socially, uh, sociologically speaking, that's where people are. Meaning, the people who are neo Hasidic and Orthodox are are usually very happy and comfortable in that community and aren't looking to join with people of other denominations. And maybe for some, it's more dogmatic, you know, how, you know, uh, it's against the rules. And for some people, it's just not of interest at all, not even on, on the radar in the first place. What do you think the future holds for Orthodox Judaism? Is neo-Hasidut going to take over and become the dominant form of religiosity in Orthodox communities? Or is this going to remain something for those people who want more? In other words, is neo-Hasidut the future? Or is it simply something which will happen and pass like the next fad or the last fad? Wow, uh, all all the prognostication. Um, so uh, I'm not going to have an answer for that either. But maybe I'll 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 give another alternative, which is, you know, it's not always that uh, a new trend either takes over completely or passes and is forgotten. Sometimes, and maybe that'll be the case here, although it's really impossible to predict. Maybe this is the sort of thing that will just sort of enter the community as an option. It's you know, in some ways, it's a historical accident that modern orthodoxy sort of associated with Litvish yeshiva learning in some sense. 
plus the modern piece, um, as opposed to a more Hasidic approach. Rabbi Lamb, a half century ago, already said, consider the possibility of integrating more Hasidus into modern orthodoxy. And, you know, there's the Rav talked a lot about modern orthodoxy uh, and, and others too. And uh, it, it wouldn't surprise me if this was a way of getting more classic Hasidic thought and Hasidic practice into the modern Orthodox community for those who were drawn to it or as an option. Uh, and, uh, it's, you know, it's not clear why the Litvish, you know, were, were sort of uh, uh, ascendant within American modern Orthodoxy. I'll add on a, on a personal note, you know, I don't particularly, I don't identify per se as neo-Hasidic, but and I mentioned this in the book, I've definitely benefited from a lot of aspects of neo-Hasidus uh, along the way in different places, and, and I, I appreciate it for uh, for the positive it has. Uh, but I, I'd say my my experience is different than it would have been had there not been neo-Hasidus, right? So it's you can go to a, a minion that's singy in a certain way that, you know, more uh, more spiritual and not just th- that there's like a pro forma, here are the tunes we sing to Kabbalah Shabbos, but everyone's actually into it. That's something that might not exist to the, to the degree it does, if not for Neo-Hasidus. It, it uh, has a way of just coloring the community in a certain way, even if it, wh- whether or not it takes over and whether or not uh, it, it passes to one degree or other, it's, I think it's, it's a, part of, a part of the reality of modern orthodoxy. Shlomo, I want to ask you about the prevalence of Neo-Hasidut. I live in Ramat Beit Shemesh, and there's a Karlbach minion nearby, and certainly in the yeshiva world that I've also been a part of, it's very important to have this spirituality as part of the curriculum, which might not have been true 20, 30, 40 years ago. Is this a prevalent phenomenon, or is it something that exists in certain corners but hasn't really taken over much of modern orthodoxy? Yeah, uh, so I think it's somewhere in the middle right now. Um, I think when when, we started working on the book and had the Orthodox Forum, uh, a few years ago, it was maybe uh, on, on on the rise, and now it's reached the point where you have many people, many people, if not most people in the modern Orthodox community, at least of a certain age, have been affected in some way or exposed in some way uh, to neo Hasidus. Whether that means that they go all in and uh, you know learn Sifrei Hasidus frequently, and uh, let's say have uh, Gartel and Pais. Um, and, uh, you know, their main religious community is neo-Hasidic, whether they go all in or whether it's more tangential that, you know, there were, you know, a couple of sheer and they hear here and there, or the minion, the odd minion, but it's, it's, it's prevalent to one degree or other, um, for a large part of the community without being, without, uh, sort of becoming the main, the main, uh, the main religious practice. So you're not gonna, you're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna walk into Teaneck and everyone, it's gonna look like it's Meisharim. I wouldn't worry about. Uh, about uh, that, that sort of change, but I think it has affected everyone to one degree or other. Um, you know, through let's say Shanaba Aretz and the learning that goes on there, through the nature of davening, through the way some people, you know, uh, present themselves externally, and the, the language people use uh, uh, around religious issues, it certainly had an impact. And there's a handful of shuls and educational institutions that explicitly uh, have mashpiim or people who are who are uh, trying to follow a uh, neo-Hasidic path. Okay, Shlomo, I'm going to ask you to take off your academic hat and put on your former campus rabbi at Yale hat, someone who dealt with students who are struggling with questions, who are struggling perhaps with orthodoxy. And what do you think young, modern Orthodox Jews really need today? Is neo-Hasidut the answer? Is it part of the answer? Is there something else out there that they really require? And when I say what they need, I really mean what they want in order to connect with God, to connect with Torah, to connect with Judaism, to make themselves feel fulfilled religiously. What do you think that, if there is such a thing as an average modern Orthodox young person, what do you think that person needs? Well, first I'll say it, it really, every, everyone is different and everyone has their own needs and their own, uh, their own preferences. But I'd say one thing that that pretty broadly, I think, uh, makes a real difference to people's to people's religious life is feeling that they're part of a of a group, part of a community, and the the nature of the community you're in will really determine your uh, very often determine the, the direction one goes in religiously. I think one of the things that Neo Hasidus has great power for is building a sense of community, a sense of camaraderie for people. To uh, to grow religiously together, so I think this sense of community is attainable 
in that religious approach as well as in others. But I think that's really the key thing to feel like, uh, you know, you're not alone. You're part of a group of people striving religiously in a certain direction. I think that makes all the difference. And uh, on campus communities, I think there's there's uh, there's the danger of someone sort of, uh, you know, just being another person on campus and not feeling like they're part of a core a core religious community that's that's growing and striving. There also is the opportunity that uh, through through the organized Jewish community on campus, and there are many different types, uh, and through any of those, one can feel like they're part of of a religious community that's growth oriented, that's uh, that cares about its Judaism. That could be you know a base medrash centric Judaism. That could be a, a davening and singing centric Judaism, and sometimes even if it's you know, it could be chesed centric, whatever it is. Uh, I think that's really that's really the key. Well, Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Zukir, this is very very interesting, and I think we're releasing this in Elul. I think that the question about greater spirituality is something which is of concern to a lot of people. I'm sure a lot of my listeners are very happy to hear you talk about how neo Hasidut is affecting Judaism in general and how it might be able to affect them, so that when they reach Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur and Sukkot, they could have a stronger chag. You've given us a lot of food for thought, and I really appreciate you joining me today on the podcast. Thank you, Scott. This is a real pleasure. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.